Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Her BTS and Onko as well. Hello, Jenny. How is everybody? I'm happy. Not bad. Be, I'm, I'm happy to be Danny's partner in crumb. <laughs> I'm just excited that we get to talk oncology with smart people about oncology. I feel the Ugh. exact same way. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so this is our second episode. Um, last week we talked about lymphoma canine multicentric, right? Right? Did yeah. I get that right? Oh, shoot. Okay. Um, this week we'll be focusing on lymphoma, but for kitty cats, so feline lymphoma, which is, it, I mean, it definitely is different. Like when we think of, I think of lymphoma, like I, they seem like completely different diseases. Like, like I don't even know why they're both called lymphoma, but. I'm sure you guys will teach us that. So we'll be talking about that. And then uh, just as a reminder for um, for CE, so this is not race approved yet. We're working on that. Um, as soon as that's done, you would need to go into the membership, fill out the, uh, complete the quiz for your certificate. And then, you know, that's how you would get it. But for right now, it is not approved, but you can definitely use it for self-study. Once this does get approved, we'll, we'll let everybody in the membership know. So that way you guys can, can, um, you know, get your CE hours if you want to trying to think if there was anything else. Uh, do you guys have anything I need to say about anything for this week before we dive into the feline lymphoma? Did we get any answers to the question? Or Jenny was having everybody look at some cells, right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see any answers yet. See, this is, we're going to, we're going to have to like poke people and be like, Hey, 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 Hey. And okay. I mean, honestly, we were talking about like some cytology. So if people have really cool pictures, like hit up your mm. Facebook site, like throw some of those really cool lymphoma cytology pictures on that site. We can also talk about them and share them with other people too. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely like, uh, cause I think you guys are both in the Facebook group, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, definitely check that out. If you guys have questions, you can reach them there. Um, if you know, you want to go directly to the source. (laughs) All right. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in and, um, yeah, I, I, you guys, you guys take it away. All right. I mean, I'm going to do the little mini recap of what disease we're actually talking about since I I know it is for cats and it is a little different, but it is still lymphoma because it's technically coming from the same cells and it's still lymphoma and not lymphosarcoma. Although if you Mm. see lymphosarcoma, it's the same thing. We just don't (laughs) need to use that. If you see LSA, that's also the abbreviation for it. So that also means lymphoma. Ah. Unfortunately derived from lymphosarcoma, LSA, but it's lymphoma. Um, And so when we talk about lymphoma, that's the cancer of the lymphatic system. So that's our body's germ fighting network and it can involve any part of our lymphatic system. So our lymph nodes, um, our GI tract, our spleen, wherever our immune cells are going to go, 
that is where you can find lymphoma. Mm. So it's considered a systemic disease, whereas a lot of cancers are very local and then they can spread to other places. This one is just considered everywhere that it wants to go. I am going to let Jenny really like dive into the types of feline because with dogs, we were looking at the most common is the, the multicentric lymphoma. So that is usually a high grade, large cell lymphoma. Whereas for our kitty cats, we are usually looking at a low grade, small cell lymphoma which is why a lot of the things are so different. And then there's what I always just like to say, cause cats do whatever they want with everything that they want, right? My house, <laughs> cancer. Um, and so, but they've got some very specific types that show up and presentation of those. And I'm gonna let Jenny tell you all about those because there's very, very <laughs> specific ones in there. So, you know, when we talk about like lymphoma itself, right, it's still a round cell cancer. It's a malignant round cell ca cancer. So a malignant tumor of lymphocytes. With our kitty cats, we commonly see a much different presentation, but as far as the physiology and the formation, how do they get it? Why do they get it? A lot of that is going to be the same as what we looked at in our canine uh, counterparts. So, you know, looking at alterations in proteins and tumor suppressor genes, allowing these tumors um, to actually develop. However, we do know specifically, and I do have this article linked for you, um, that cigarette smoke or kitty cats that live in a cigarette smoke household are actually, actually much more likely to develop lymphoma. So we know specifically for hmm. the fact um, that, that lymphoma um, can be increased with cigarette exposure in our kitty cat friends. So really great to know, right? Because if you have some of those owners that come in, and maybe they have an older kitty cat that's maybe not feeling well, having some of these clinical signs. And you can tell, you know, a lot of times you, you get that, that you can just smell right on the carrier, on the clothes. And if you know that, that certainly can be an indicator of things that maybe would be added to our differential list. You know, the incidence of feline lymphoma is what is staggering to me. You know, we talked about canine multicentric last week and how we see, you know, something um, and that should say 200, not 22. Um, and we saw something <laughs> 50 out of 100,000 dogs. Um, and our kitty cat friends is more in the about 200 cases per 100,000 cats. So significantly more uh, of a higher incidence in canines or than we see in people which is pretty amazing to me, right? So when it's you crazy. think about that and you see the cases that you're seeing clinically, a lot of times we think about those canine lymphoma cases, right? But so many times we're like, well, I don't know that I'm seeing that much feline lymphoma, but according to the incidence reports, we know it's there. So we're missing it, right? So we yeah. know that it exists. So, you know, doing additional diagnostics and Danny's going to nail on all that stuff of why those additional diagnostics can be so important um, to help us not miss um, these presentations. Typically, we see uh, feline lymphoma, the most common presentation that we see is alimentary or in the GI tract. Small intestines are going to be most commonly affected. Um, and we do differentiate that into three different classifications. And when I say three different classifications, we're going to talk about 
um, the small cell and large cell. And then we actually break large cell into a, a further category, what we call LGL or large granular lymphoma. So anytime it is a large cell tumor we ex or a large cell disease, we expect that disease to be a bit more aggressive. That mm -hmm. small cell or lymphocytic lymphoma is typically very diffuse disease that we see through the small intestine. A lot of patients, about 70% of patients um, will actually have waxing and waning clinical signs. So these are those older kitty cats that come in. They've had this history of vomiting, diarrhea. Oh, we think it's IBS. They get a PRED therapy for their IBS, right? And then their clinical signs magically disappear. Um, and then they stop their PRED and then their signs reoccur. So very, very common presentation uh, for small cell low grade. The really good thing about those small cell low grade cases is these patients can be monitored and maintained for years. These kitty cats can do really, really well um, with the right medication and right monitoring. You know, with our alimentary lymphoma, small, you know, differentiating between small cell and large cell is going to be extremely important for prognostic factors. There's also some different things we will see on physical exam with these patients. A lot of times, like I said, that small cell is going to be very diffuse, right? That's going to be those waxing and waning. But with the large cell lymphoma tumors, or especially with what we call LGL, large granular lymphoma, these patients can become acute ill and typically we tend to see more mass type structures or large lymph nodes. Mm, um, mm -hmm. These are going to be the cases that you see that have a lymph node that's obstructing the GI tract. That's going to be more commonly that we see with large cell lymphoma, not diffuse disease, which is more typical common presentation of small cell. Now, just because feline lymphoma is most commonly seen in the GI tract doesn't mean that it can't happen other locations. And the most common addition, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most common additional locations that we see um, are the nasal cavity. It's the most common intranasal tumor in kitty cats. You know, very common have these cats come in. They've been monitored for, um, you know, upper respiratory for weeks and weeks and weeks, and they're not responding. Um, maybe they have some unilateral discharge, things like that. Um, I love the slide test <clears throat> on these guys that we suspect nasal mm -hmm. tumors, where you take that that clean glass slide, hold off one nostril, put it in front to see if you get airflow out of the other can be really helpful when trying to identify if it's unilateral or bilateral. Um, so 20% of those cases that have nasal feline lymphoma can actually progress to peripheral lymphadenopathy and peripheral lymphoma. We also see bone marrow infiltration of lymphoma commonly, well, not commonly, but more commonly than some of the other sites, uh, renal and then mediastinal lymphoma. And when we talk about risk factors, it's typically alimentary lymphoma is typically a disease of older kitty cats. This is something we see developing typically in our older cats, but there are some risk factors, specifically retroviral status that can be, uh, that can increase uh, the likelihood to develop lymphoma. So with feline leukemia, we actually see direct tumor genesis because of T cell activity. And so with mm. our feline uh, leukemia patients, we commonly see thymic or lymphoma in, uh, in the thymus gland or 
peripheral node or in the mediastinum. So remember how we said in our canine counterpart friends that we would see um, um, mediastinal mass in our dogs would be more linked to T-cell lymphoma. It's the same thing with our kitty cats. We can mm -hmm. also see presentations of Horner's syndrome, very common um, with these feline leukemia positive cats. And often it's because they have that mediastinal mass. So with FIV or uh, those type of co-infection, we don't see any direct tumor genesis with FIV like we do with feline leukemia. But if they have a co-infection, meaning they have feline leukemia and FIV, those patients are 77 times more likely to develop Ooh. lymphoma. Right. So, you know, mm. we're much, we're much more commonly seeing these households or these catteries that are sustaining feline leukemia positive rooms or feline leukemia positive groups. Same thing with FIV, you know? And so this is extremely important to know, right? Because we should be educating these owners that just because of this retroviral status and the co-infection, we know that we really have to watch this patient for development of lymphoma down the road. Um, Hmm. Another really interesting thing about physical exam on these kitty cats. So about 70% of them will have abnormal GI palpation, right? Yeah. And most of these kitty cats are those thin kind of crunchy looking guys, you know what I mean? Which are kind of my favorite, <laughs> the, the crunchier and older, the better. Um, but that's pretty typical. But those are the cases that we can do a pretty thorough GI palpation and about 70% of those. Yeah, intestines. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So pretty common um, with those physical exam findings. But yeah, um, feline lymphoma is definitely a different beast um, than canine lymphoma. But just like our canine lymphoma counterparts, some of these patients can live very long times and do very, very well. Yeah, we kind of, I mean, in internal medicine, it's, it's, we joke that almost all of our cats that we see will eventually become lymphoma just because oh, we yeah, deal with sure. so many IBD patients. Huh. Um, and, and they get sent to us because it is IBD and we're like, actually we're already at lymphoma. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I always feel horrible because you were talking about like that age, age, right. And I go, okay, if it's a cat that is seven to eight years old or 11 to 13, like those are the two prime groups where we almost always were like, oh, they, if those symptoms just started in that age range, Mm. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bet, I'm gonna bet on GI lymphoma, which, which yep. sucks. And yeah, yeah. yeah. But you and know, I mean, it's one of those disease processes that we as technicians really get to manage those cases, right? Because yeah. some of those clinical signs, I mean, the nursing part of it is so important. So I think that's why I, I hate to say I love cancer. Obviously I do because I'm a little bit of a dwarf. <laughs> um, you know, I really, I like these feline lymphoma cases because their long-term management is, is a lot of fun um, and is very involved. Yeah. And I think like in my particular clinic, um, the GI lymphoma kitty cats. Um, I think it's, it's hit and miss as far as like which department they end up in, <laughs> you know, it's like, does the client want an onco consult? No. Okay. Then we're just going to treat you the way that we would treat you anyways. And, um, yeah, it is, it is funny. I feel like they're almost half and half as far as like, who's managing them. <laughs> yeah. 
And I also feel like even with COVID, it kind of depends on the caseload. Like, oh, can't get into the internist for a couple weeks. Oh, the oncologist has an open appointment. So let's play the rule out game. Which one are we going to rule out and in here? You hit the nail on the head. Like our, the biggest differential that we've got for lymphoma and cats is going to be IBD. And so ruling out IBD by doing all of the testing it's going to be one of the, the biggest, the biggest things. Other I can, I can totally tell that you're an oncology technician. Cause you're like ruling out IBD in internal medicine. We say ruling out lymphoma. Right? <laughs> I'm like, we do all the tests to rule out lymphoma. Then it's IBD. And you're like, do all the tests to rule out IBD. <laughs> and I think it's because so many of them just come from internal medicine where it's already been ruled out. So it's like most of the time we aren't actually diagnosing our GI. Yeah. Lymphoma. They're coming yeah. to us because everybody thought we, we did IV the biopsy and, and yeah, and here they come. They're going to come see the other department in yeah. um, after they get started. Um, so when we start doing diagnostics on these guys, it's obviously going to depend on which type I am going to heavily talk about GI lymphoma because it is the most prevalent among cats, but I will touch on the other ones as well, because they are, the other ones tend to be more serious, but we usually find them doing a lot of the same tests. So when we talk about our diagnostics for our canine lymphoma friends, those are very technician heavy, we get to do a lot of those because they are not generally invasive. Our cats, they laugh in our face. They were like, ha ha ha. You're just going to be a cat wrangler and process my samples and do the things for me. Cause I am master because that's how cats do. Right. So when we get to them, it is going to be those more invasive. When we talk about the, the diagnostic is going to be a biopsy. I know a lot of times And we find this by an ultrasound. So of course, whenever our kitties come in with any type of GI issue, anything, Mm -hmm. x-rays aren't going to rule out a whole lot. As far as abdominal x-rays, we are going to want that abdominal ultrasound instead. And so that's going to be able to let us know one, it looks like it's our intestinal tract. If it looks like it might be according to any other organ in the abdominal cavity. (laughs) So if it is looking like oh, we have an angry pancreas or going towards like our external or renal lymphoma, we'd be able to see mm. that a little bit better on that ultrasound to see where needles need to be going. And when it comes to GI lymphoma, doing a fine needle aspirate or is not actually diagnostic most of the time because it is the small cell. It can absolutely be diagnostic if you have a mass Um, If you have renal lymphoma and you have changes in there, and it is that intermediate to large cell, those can be diagnostic samples. And so when we are looking like, Ooh, we need to differentiate between IBD, GI lymphoma, we're definitely leaning towards one or the other. Suggesting an aspirate is almost like wasting money because you're going to have to sedate them because unless that cat does not feel well at all, they're not, they don't even like your finger to touch their belly before they bring out the murder (laughs) mittens, like a needle going in there. It's going to be a little bit harder to do on one of them when they're awake. So it's all of the sedating and doing all of those steps in order to get a sample that is most likely not going to be diagnostic at all. Yeah. We usually want to go with biopsies and we can do them either way. We can do endoscopy or we can go with surgical biopsies. 
in oncology, we do recommend actually the surgical biopsies because they are going to be full thickness. Uh, when it comes to GI lymphoma, it tends to hang out down in the ileum. So a lot of times getting those samples means that endoscopy, they need to do upper and lower to get a good enough sample for that. But we can get an answer by doing endoscopy. endoscopy. Woo, I cannot say that word today. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Cause I know like with my doctors, um, they obviously they present both, right? Like mm -hmm. surgical biopsy I, is considered kind of gold standard for the exact reason you said full thickness. But, you know, a lot of times, like if there's anything else that looks funky on ultrasound, so let's say, you know, the, the liver's got like a little heterogeneous, oh my God, heterogeneous. <laughs> There you go. Um, look to it. Or let's say like the kidney looks a little bit funky or there's anything else that looks unusual. They usually say, yeah, surgical biopsy is going to be the best because you're going to get that full thickness. We're going to check to see if it's anywhere else. Um, whatever we're suspecting. <laughs> um, but you know, it, and that's, that's, that's the thing that clients need to understand is like, that's major abdominal surgery. There are risks associated with it versus, mm -hmm. you know, we can do endoscopy and, you know, yes, our samples may not give us the answer, but most of the times they do. And it's less invasive. So it's, it's one of those pros and cons oh. and GI like endoscopy is usually less expensive than full surgery. Sure <laughs> so. And honestly, this is where even like the technician comes in with educating our client on what's going to be happening mm -hmm. and understanding their patient. Like if you have a feline that is going to be not a great patient overnight, surgery right. might not be the best idea for that patient specifically, because with an endoscopy, generally they're waking up, they're going back home the same day. We're able to actually in implement treatment a lot faster because our treatment, as Jenny said, those steroids, we do love our prednisolone and our little friends. Um, you generally can, should not, cannot start that until at least a week, ideally 10 to 14 days after surgery, mainly because right. it can delay healing. So we want the healing to happen first before we really kickstart things. Whereas with endoscopy, we can go ahead and get started with our therapies, especially if they're already <laughs> symptomatic, right? So we can I was going to say sometimes if it looks chemo. bad enough, yeah, we're like, oh, let's just give them a little dose of Dexa while they're out. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So when we Sorry. are looking at getting our diagnosis and using our biopsy sample, if for some reason it's not diagnostic, you can also run the PAR on it. So you can look for the clonality of the cells uh, to be able to get a definitive diagnosis. Uh, there are some places out there that actually always run both just to make sure because on that biopsy sample, they can histologically still look like IBD, especially if you're getting not getting a full thickness because it can be a lot of the inflammation and stuff. So they could read it out mm -hmm. as IBD and it still might be GI lymphoma that they have been diagnosed with the PAR test. So, yeah, I feel like, um, the, 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 I was gonna say the biopsy. Oh my God. The laboratory that, that we use at my clinic, um, probably I would say in the last three to five years, cause I can't remember exactly when, but all of a sudden it was like, we recommend par and it was like, occasionally they'd say it. And now I'm like, of course you recommend par, you recommend par on everything. So we've almost gotten to the point where we've told our clients, like, we're going to recommend par. <laughs> so you may as well just 
set him up for it now because it's not cheap. It's it's an expensive. I mean, it's relatively expensive test, but you know when you're trying to rule out lymphoma because because I work in internal medicine, I'm gonna say rule out lymphoma. (laughs) I mean, it's such a it's such a useful tool. So, Um, and in case you don't know what PAR is. It's a polyamorase chain reaction for antigen receptor rearrangement, which is kind of cool. Like it just, it, are you going to talk about it? Cause if not, I can kind of, I mean, of I hadn't planned on it. it. So please jump on in. Cause I kind of did last time and my words get all <laughs> jumbly around me with R and I don't know why you're probably going to, you're probably going to be able to say it better than me. So, um, but I, the thing that's cool is like, it, cause cancer basically is like a replication that's inappropriate of cells. And so what, what happens is they're going to look to see if there's cells that are identical with the inappropriate DNA sequencing in them. And that's, which I think is, I don't know. I just think that's really cool. And they can see like how many of that happened. Like how many bad Xerox copies did your body just produce? Like, you know, the, the copy machine that's spitting out a bunch of crap that you're going to end up having to throw out. Yeah. (laughs) And when you honestly, and I feel like when we get to our level, sometimes we forget to break our words down um, how we used to when we were first learning. So like when you think of like something that's monoclonal, so mono, so we've got one and clone means it's cloning the same one over and over. So that's monoclonal. So that's cancer is usually just replicating itself over and over, whereas the body naturally has more. So our polyclonal, so it's replicating all the cells um, and doing what it's supposed to do. So that's what the polyclonal looks like. So I know sometimes that helps to understand it a little bit better because I definitely was like, I don't know what that means. Or when we started (laughs) talking about like the monoclonal antibodies, that's even a big thing nowadays with uh, everything that's going on in the world. So you kind of actually know a little (laughs) bit more about it than you think, I promise. Um, And so when we, I've talked a lot about doing the biopsies, which all stem from like our imaging, right? So we want to do an abdominal ultrasound that is going to potentially show us it might not um if it's GI lymphoma a lot of times it looks like thickening along the intestinal loops in the GI system but it doesn't always so if they have Mm. all the signs so it's walking like a duck it's talking like a duck but it doesn't quite look like one you should maybe still go after it I will say that my own cat was one of those where she had all of the symptoms she'd been hyperthyroid in the past she did iodine so we already had she was already radioactive once upon a time. I thought it was that again, ultrasound, nothing totally normal. And she was like, but we're going to do this. And lo and behold, GI lymphoma. So yeah. um, yep. just because it's normal, we want to definitely take all those symptoms into effect and what treatments we've tried with them. If we've tried everything, we want to make sure that it's there. But again, that'll let us know, like, we'll see if there's any kidney changes to see if we're looking at renal lymphoma or not. Um, if there's any enlarged abdominal organs or just anything that is abnormal, because again, we can do FNAs at the time, especially if we're doing endoscopies we know that we can absolutely kind of just poke around in those as well, if we're in there. Mm -hmm. And then we also want to take our chest x-rays as normal, because as Jenny said, we do get those mediastinal lymphomas in cats. These guys, because, you know, because cats, they hide it just like their heart failure, right? So like, they're not going to show you that there's a problem until they are knocking on ER doors saying, save me now, or I might bite you. I'm not really sure yet. 
but it's the same kind of thing. So when they present, it's going to be that dysnic. We want to take x-rays. Um, they can have fluid, so it can look like that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times there, there may be that mass in there as well. So that's when we see that mediastinal mass, but that's when our chest x-rays are also going to be very important. Even if we have to tap their chest first to be able to get the full picture, similar to our congestive heart failure kids, when we're looking at their hearts, we're going to look at their mediastinum, which is in the same area. <laughs> so yeah. we want to take those. Um, and when we look at our lab work, it's a lot of the same. We can see some changes if we are seeing um, renal changes on our chemistry, then it can be because of renal lymphoma. So that can cause changes. Um, otherwise we are getting our full picture. Um, so we do want to get our CBC, our chemistry and our urinalysis. And then some additional tests that we like to look at in these guys is I'm gonna tell you in oncology, we don't do this a whole lot. Either Same. of these tests actually. Um, and so the, <laughs> the retrovirals, so doing the FELV FIV test now, it's not going to tell us whether or not they have lymphoma. However, as Jenny said, we know that the incidence goes up if they do have those. So that's helpful. But also when it comes to treatment, having feline leukemia actually lessens the ability for treatment to work. Um, they have shown that that does unfortunately do that. So it is a very good idea if we have lymphoma to test these guys ahead of time, because that'll give us an idea if we are meeting a resistant cancer versus it's their other concurrent disease that's also causing issues there. And then one of the other tests that again, oncology doesn't do this a whole lot, and they usually <laughs> come to us with this done is going to be the cobalamin testing. Because with the GI disease, man, I'm going to let Avon go ahead and talk about this. If you feel like you'd love to talk about this, but with GI disease, our vitamin B, cobalamin, it can absolutely be low because of our absorption issues and be knowing that it's low and giving supplementation also helps when we're treating cancer as well. So it can also be low. So we don't always test for, we don't always implement it. I know a lot of my doctors are usually looking at the internist going, what was it you recommended? How often <laughs> you've already started it? So we're on what part of that dosing regimen are we doing? Oh but God, so funny. <laughs> if they do come to oncology and they don't have that yet, it's a very, very good idea to go ahead and run those to get supplementation on board. Yeah. And we usually, we talk about, um, Texas A&M, the, the GI lab, like that's, I, I think that's where everybody refers to. Um, and for cats, <laughs> it's so easy for cats because <laughs> we usually have the 1000 microgram per mil B12 and it's, uh, 0.25 usually, I mean, there is some dosing range, but it's usually 0.25 mils per cat <laughs> once a week for six weeks. And then once a month. Um, and it's crazy because, you know, it, it, the reason why is because the guts aren't uptaking the, the B12, like it normally should because of the disease process. Right. Um, but it, it's, you know, we have so many patients that once you start supplementing, um, their appetite gets better. Um, their, um, the, their bowel movements are better. And, and that's just from supplementing B12. Um, and we've seen some patients like clients will tell us, they're like, yeah, when I get to those last couple of days or the last week before that monthly injection, we see a dip in like in feeding and in like appetite. And so it's, 
and it's great because it's a water soluble vitamin. So like if, you know, they don't need it, they just pee it out. So you can't really overdose on B12, which is great. Um, they do make tablets, but I don't know any cats that will eat the tablets. So we usually just do the injections and, you know, it's once a week or once a month. I mean, it's, it's usually super, super easy, but yeah, B12, um, awesome stuff. Yeah. It's bright. It's pink, pinkish red. I focus on the important things in life, the color. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so when we look at those guys and we look at starting that, so our other kinds of lymphoma, like what other diagnostics are we going to do? So when we have those kids who do come in dyspneic and might have, um, either fluid in their chest or a mediastinal mass, those are the things that we can go ahead and send like our par or flow on that fluid. We can send out a fluid analysis. We can do a cytology of that mass. If we're, (laughs) we get a sample of it, when we are doing all of those things, we can still send out a lot of those. So that's, we can get an FNA diagnosis on a lot of those because cats, a lot of theirs do tend to be T cell, um, that T or B cell for flow cytometry, whereas dogs that affects prognosis, not so much. It's usually just a slightly different disease process in cats. It doesn't really have anything to do with prognosis, but those are still tests that can be done to see which cell line they come from the B cells or the T cells. Yeah. I mean, you can do a bone marrow aspirate for cats. It's not going to tell you honestly, any useful information that your CBC wouldn't actually already tell you mainly because they don't tend to have the kind that moves into their bone marrow. And if they do, it's usually going to show up on their CBC. Um, yeah, I was going to say, we don't, we don't do the bone marrow aspirate super frequently unless we're seeing stuff on CBC and then we're like, uh Oh, but I mean, most of the times we, we aren't doing it. No, I had, I, I can remember one patient and it sticks out because it's the one where it had like large cell multicentric lymphoma, because yeah. of course it did as a cat. Why not? And so we did <laughs> all the tests. We did the aspirate. We sent out the flow. We did a bone marrow. And I still remember he was a tiger cat and I cannot remember his name, but man, do I remember doing all of those things. Mm. He was so tiny for that bone marrow. It's just so much harder. Um, and yeah. if we're not putting them under for anything else because GL lymphoma, you don't necessarily need to do the bone marrow. So if we're not putting them under right. for anything else or sedation, then there's not a big compelling argument for doing it. Yeah. So we don't generally recommend it as much. However, once we have done all of those, our treatment, most of these guys are not going to get hospitalized unless we're doing the surgical biopsies, um, or they have come in because of their presenting symptoms. So if it is, (laughs) they are horribly dehydrated because of vomiting, diarrhea, or they are that cat that hasn't eaten for a day or two. And we are going to get into danger of of getting hepatic lipidosis and causing all sorts of other problems. Those are the ones that are going to come in through emergency that might need to be hospitalized so that we can get treatment and diagnostics implemented, as well as potentially our dyspneic cats for having um, proliffusion or um, having a mass effect in there. Those are usually the only ones that we're going to see through emergency that would need inpatient treatment. Otherwise, everybody else, we are treating street, right? We love doing that. (laughs) Except it's a lot of hand-holding and client education because the main protocol that we use for our GI lymphoma kitty cats is actually low dose chemotherapy that's given at home. It's called metronomic. 
And the main one that we use is chlorambucil or Lucaran. Lucaran is a little more expensive because it's a mm. brand name. Not going to lie. Um, but these guys are usually getting it at home every other day. And it's a pretty small pill. Oh my gosh. They make it in so many forms now. Yeah, I saw that there's like chewable treats. There's all these things that they always said they would never do with chemotherapy. And then they did it and they're working. And so honestly, if it works for the cat and they're happy, yeah. people can get it into them and they're safe about it. Great. That well, it's cause it's that. like, you know, trying to get things into cats, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's especially mm-hmm. because so many people were saying I need it in liquid form, which is like the worst way to do a chemo drug because it's like foam and spitting and everything. But, um, yeah, if you can do, yeah, they make it in so many formulations now and, and it's so great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Makes me so happy. And so we combine <laughs> that with prednisolone and make sure that we are giving prednisolone, not prednisone to our kitty cat friends. Yes, um, yes. And keeping in mind that you can absolutely get that compounded because if someone is looking for a liquid because they can't give a pill, please don't send home that three mig per mil cherry sticky stuff. Oh, God, the yeah. amount of liquid they have to give their cat is insane and no cat likes I mean if they do oh my goodness but like the cherry yeah so you can get it formulated into different flavors we like to do 10 migs per mil because then they're giving (laughs) right so the smallest amount of liquid until someone learns that they actually want pills right (laughs) pills for cats um right? It goes over so much better. So generally, um, they're going to be on that and we don't have to see them as frequently as for dogs. So usually we want to see them one week later because we are starting a chemotherapy, right? So we want to check our blood work. Chlorambucil over time can affect both the liver and the platelets. Um, that is generally after long-term use. So we're going to look at that over time. So we will continue to check that. But because it is a chemotherapy, we also watch our white blood cell count. Um, usually not as big a deal because this is a smaller dose that is happening more frequently. Um, and it does vary based on clinician exactly what that recheck schedule is going to look like. We generally have them come in um, a week later, then two weeks later, then again, like two weeks after that, just to make sure. And then we'll start to flip them over to once a month pending everything is working and going well and all of our symptoms are starting to resolve and everything is going peachy keen. Uh, Not everybody responds to chlorambucil, so it actually can be switched with cyclophosphamide and they have found that there isn't a big difference in the remission or response to treatment when they do switch that. If they're not responding to one, they will generally respond to the other one. Oh, nice. Great um, to know that they can actually switch those um, for either one. This is where I said the cobalamin should be supplemented. It's not going to cure the cancer, but man, it can make these guys feel better faster. Um, Mm. we can treat them symptomatically, but without the steroids and without the chemotherapy, they're probably not going to feel a whole lot better. (laughs) No. Um, if, if an owner is not sure that they want to go the chemotherapy route, usually starting prednisone is, or I'm sorry, prednisolone. Oh, do not say prednisone. Prednisolone <laughs> is going to be the way to go. 
because they can start to see those symptoms resolve. Their cat can start feeling better. They, it, all those like side effects that you think of stairs, like I have to warn them are the ones we want to see, right? We want to see them. Eat. <laughs> we want to see the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> we want to see good things. So when it comes yeah. to all of the other kinds of lymphoma that cats can get, we get into a couple other protocols, the gold standard lymphoma protocol, the CHOP protocol, the Wisconsin Madison, um, that one can be used in cats that have the large cell. Mm-hmm. When we use doxorubicin in dogs, it tends to affect their heart. It can affect a cat's heart. Nothing obvious that we're going to be able to see. And it's not something that is the first <laughs> worry on our mind because doxorubicin actually affects their kidneys before it does anything else. And so we have to be very careful with our kitty cats and doxorubicin. So many use a slightly different protocol, the COP protocol. So we will use cyclophosphamide, vincristine and prednisone and just not use doxorubicin. And they do really well with that one. Uh, Some of the other ones like our, our renal or CNS lymphoma, that is when we will look at our drugs that cross our blood brain barrier. So our lomastine. And we will do those usually single agent where we give it once every three weeks. Cats can sometimes be once every three, four, five, six weeks on Lomastine. It is variable because every cat responds however it wants because it's a cat. Um, Their white blood cells can dip twice. So we have to monitor them very closely after we give those first couple doses so we can get an idea of exactly how your cat will respond to that drug. very, very specific. And then we can do prednisone only. And that is a-okay. Again, it's going to be all about conversations with the owner, their chemotherapy safety, their ability to medicate their animal. If they can't, if it's going to negatively impact their relationship with their cat, that's a big deal. So like, if they're not able to do those things, then we don't want to force them because getting more time where your cat's now hiding from you is not better than having great quality time where you guys get to hang out and be BFF still, or, you know, your feline overlord gets to continue <laughs> overlording right. your house. And so we do want to prepare them for all of these things, what to expect at home, that client communication is key. They are giving this medication themselves. Many already have preconceived notions about chemotherapy mm. and it's not usually a positive one. And so talking them through that and instilling such confidence in them that they're able to give it at home. Like think of how hard it is to talk to your diabetics owners or like your renal kitties who they're given sub Q fluids at home, throw some, some, the chemotherapy word in there with it. And you're like, Oh, well, what am I doing? So we have to make sure that we really inform them what the side effects are. Cause when it's low dose daily, if we're looking at the injectable or single agents, there's a kind of a prescribed time that we see side effects. That's not always the case with our low dose metronomic chemos. Um, I found out personally the hard way when giving drugs that uh, chlorambucil can have some startling side effects that I was not aware of. Um, like that they're, I think of the humans, the chemo um, brain fog, they can kind of get that way. My cat got a little spacey on the days that she got it. And of course my oncologist was like, I don't know anything about that. Like, are you sure it's from that? And I was like, you know, I'm not, but I am because she lives in a room by herself right now while we're starting this. So it's the only thing that's happening. And I joined this absolutely fantastic group on Facebook. Um, They are 
science-based, even though they are not run by veterinary professionals. You would think that it is based on what they actually say, but so many people see this side effect and it was something I don't think I ever would have known if I hadn't had to take care of one myself. Hmm. So getting to know, like kind of ferreting out, I don't usually like start out with that one because I don't want to scare someone, but if they're mentioning something like that, being able to let them know it is actually from the chlorambucil itself. Um, but knowing what a nadir period is, what it can look like if they're having side effects to it, because these side effects to chemotherapy look a lot like what's already happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if we see that we aren't getting better, we have to try and figure out like any nuances that happened, was our vomiting better and then worse, or has it just gotten worse? Or is it the same? This is when history taking is going to be super important to try and figure out, is this chemo related or is this cancer related? Um, but they should start to return to eating more <laughs> yay bread. Yeah. Um, and, um, just generally having a better appetite and a little bit more energy. And we always have to take into account our long-term goals, right? Like I said, if they're not able to medicate their cat, we don't want to force that on them. If their cat turns into what my cat does when he walks into a vet hospital, I've already come to terms with, he gets anything that needs chronic veterinary visits. That's not going to be for him. Like that'll be a, we're going to palliative treat. Oh, he just, it's even drugs. It's it is, it's a nightmare and you know it from loving on him. And then there's my other one who I'll do everything. Cause she gets no, she doesn't care at all. She goes into the hospital. <laughs> um, but knowing that about their cat or even figuring it out as they come in, using all the drugs that we can, all of those low stress, fear-free, all of those types of handling techniques are going to be key with our kitties. So as they come in, making it the best experience we can, treating them in the carrier, taking their temperature if it's necessary with each visit, depending on how often they're visiting, um, being able to tell when they're going to lose it. I use a lot of pheromones in my room. I use a lot of music, closing the door, um, <laughs> treats, funny enough, even for cats, mm -hmm. if I can figure out that they'll eat it. Um, but we have some who, you know, they need their drugs. They need the little gabapentin. They need some trazodone. Sometimes they might even need some torb, depending on what we're doing. Uh, but that is really where your skills at reading cats is going to become key to make or break how well that cat does. Because as we know, stress alone can often do a lot of damage to our cats. And so by minimizing that, we actually increase their chances of responding. So I think that's a really, really important thing to drive home when treating our cats. Like just because we can treat them doesn't mean that we should. And then yeah. making sure that we deal with the guilt that owners feel over that and making sure that they know they're making the right decision for their friend. So, sorry, I get, that's a real big soapbox. <laughs> like, you are allowed to soapbox on things. <laughs> seen them do so terrible. And I'm like, are they doing so terrible because they get so stressed out every time they come here and they have to come here so often right now? Or is it, just because their cancer says, no, I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. And, of, and sometimes it's hard because, um, we only see them for this, like for the visit. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's having that conversation with the client, especially if we don't have prior to being sick knowledge of that animal. Right. Um, mm -hmm. because 
they can they can react very differently. Um, and so knowing them before they get sick helps because you'd be like, this isn't fluffy, <laughs> you know, and yeah. That's when they're transferred from internal medicine, you're hoping that they're from your hospital so that you can walk <laughs> over and have a conversation be like, have they always acted this way? Or is this a brand new thing? <laughs> and you're like, no, this is, this is normally fluffy or no, this is fluffy feels horrible. Right. And you're like, no, she usually does that. Yeah. <laughs> but I know I talked like a lot about chemo and a lot about what can happen. And so I am going to turn it back over to Jenny. I promise. Um, where she's going to talk about honestly, like the treatment, the cautions, the chemotherapy side of it and what that looks like, um, for both the patient and the owner. Well, I have to just briefly, while you guys were talking, I was looking up articles on, um, the efficacy and differentiation of diagnosis from full thickness biopsies as compared to endoscopic biopsies. Um, and there are a couple of papers. The most recent paper I found is a Polish paper out of a, a Polish veterinary college. Um, compare, yeah, it's a, I'll, I'll post all these, but um, it's talking about where we're talking about diffuse disease versus that solitary disease and how using endoscopic biopsies are going to be much more higher yield without a high inflammatory process. Um, and that makes total sense because when yeah. you think about it on a cellular level, we know what that inflammation does, which makes it more difficult. So, you know, the reports, I mean, from everything I say, it looks like there is really no true one benefit over the other, unless you think there is a very high inflammatory component. So, mm -hmm. um, but I'll post some of these links. Um, just so you guys can see them. Cause I did, I was sitting over here reading all kinds of papers when you guys were going. So, um, there were more papers out there on that comparison between those two types of sampling techniques with feline lymphoma than I was prepared for. So um, there is, there is lots of good literature. Um, you know, as far as, is the, you know, any kind of cautions with these kids, you know, really when we talk about anything with chemotherapy, they're going to be the same, right? Whether it's cats, dogs, um, those, those safety, uh, measures are going to be the same. Um, you know, luckily when we are doing things like oral chemo at home, you know, the side effects that we see in these patients on metronomic chemo tend to be a lot less than when they are doing IV or maximum tolerated dose chemotherapy. So the neutropenia tends to be a little bit lower. I have, I have found in kitty cats with chemo platelets are always missing. Um, so, mm. you know, not only that, that white cell that those neutrophil counts, but our kitty cats, their platelets tend to be really heavily affected, especially, um, when we start using things like CCNU or low mustine. Mm. So that is another area um, that I tend to kind of pay attention with these kids. Um, you know, I honestly, I think the biggest message from not just our canine lymphoma, but this feline lymphoma is that a lot of the thoughts out there that these lymphoma diagnosis are a death sentence or that these patients can't be treated or managed long-term or chronically is just not true. Mm. Um, and now to be able to put those common presentations in the dog and in the cat together, kind of with some clinical picture, hopefully is hopefully changing some of the listeners ideas and thoughts about lymphoma in general. Um, so, I mean, 
cautions per se are really going to be the same when we're coming to chemo handling and chemo safety. And we're going to touch on that a whole specific episode. Um, but, you know, really what I think is the most important to take away is really that these kids can be managed and managed well, uh, dependent upon their type of lymphoma. Yeah. Well, and I think um, just because we see so many of them in our, you know, in internal medicine too, um, just because they were diagnosed with one or the other doesn't guarantee, like that's, that's something clients need to understand too, is just because it's a small cell lymphoma doesn't guarantee that they're going to have years and years and years. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've definitely seen those cats that were like, yes, it's small cell lymphoma. And then they just crash within a couple of months. And we don't know why, like there's, you know, there's, we don't understand it. And then I've seen the larger ones that, you know, they're a year or two out. And, and that's why, you know, doctors are really good about giving the, this is the average, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you um, know, like there's those ones, that, there's the outliers that, yeah. that are years yeah. and years. And then there's the outliers that are, that are shorter. So, oh yeah. I mean, yeah. And immediate, median survival times, a lot of times in oncology is where a lot of that data comes from, you yeah. know, but the first rule of cancer medicine is cancer does what cancer wants. And that's, that's always what I tell people is, look, I'm going to tell you what we want, what we expect based on the data, but there is always the chance that it can go completely awry and nothing like I'm about to tell you. Um, and I think that's the frustrating part with, with cancer. Um, and diabetes and the pancreas, so, you know, <laughs> oh, just yeah. not gonna mess with those. But um, again, it's it's the nursing management, that client communication is is yeah. huge in helping that as well. Well, and I think too, like when we're having those conversations with clients, it's making sure they feel comfortable to reach out, right? If they if they notice something or like their spidey senses are tingling about something, just just ask us, right? And we can Absolutely. be like. Oh, you notice brain fog on the day you give the chemo. Well, it's not a common side effect, but we can see it. Like, just let us know. Or, oh, you notice the day after um, giving the chlorambucil, uh, he vomits. Well, cool. Let's give an anti-nausea medication this, this, the day of, or maybe the day after. So I think, you know, just making sure they feel comfortable talking to us and, and, you know, because it is about quality of life. Like, I think that's Absolutely. what, I think that's what all of oncology is, right? It's like quality of life versus like human oncology. It's totally different. Quality, quality <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, yes, you, you have to, you have to let an owner be okay with not, not doing all the stuff, right? Like, and don't make them feel guilty because they can't afford it. Or don't make them feel guilty that, you know, their cat's a a jerk when he comes into the hospital. And we're like, we totally get it. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, So I think that's one of my favorites. He was a kitty cat that man, he was rotten to the core at the hospital. (laughs) And he was my favorite. Actually, we used to use the cup muzzle. I don't know if anyone's ever done that where you you punch holes and you put the gauze through it and you cut the end off so they can see out the cup, but it's over their <laughs> face so they can't bite you. I used to take him out and show her that he was like that. And he'd be growling at me. I was like, but I love him. She goes, I don't understand you. I was like, oh, I, it's okay. He's so upset, <laughs> but I love him. He gives me one shot to get his blood from his jugular. If that does not work, he's not playing anymore. And so Aww. he, 
Um, he was a cat with GI lymphoma that ended up needing CHOP and he responded to it, was in remission for a long time and then got, had to go through CHOP again um, mm. and did great. And it was so crazy because of course he's not like any other cat that needs because cats. Um, and he was such a sass pot, but apparently I was the first person that was ever able to handle him. And I was like, well, he doesn't scare me. He's not happy to see me, but he was perfectly fine once he went home or if she even touched him at the hospital, he would know it was her. And I'm like, Hi, my, my angry kitty doesn't care that it's me. He would rather bite me than anybody <laughs> else. So that's not that's nice. Awesome. Um, but yeah, and I always, one of the things I, I like to do in my communication ones where I tell people, because usually if we're delivering the news of, hey, cancer, uh, people's ability to hear what you're saying is already altered because that's oh, yeah. not an okay thing. And they've already been worried about their cat. And so they only process some things. And so when the doctor's telling them an average or it's a mean, they heard that as that's exactly what's going to happen with mine. So they don't yeah. even process it the right way or realize that. And so I always try to like reiterate, like, these are statistics. This is based on how everyone is done. I deem everyone my miracle children until they prove me otherwise, but I need you to be realistic mm. about it. And so I will go into that and be like, don't you worry. You've got me over here thinking we've got things. We're going to do this. And I, I'm full of hope for you. So, but then I try to bring them back in to restate it again. And then the next visit, they come in doing it again, just to make sure that they've processed it at that point, that our yeah. expectations are still realistic. Um, while still giving them hope because I'm a hopeful person. <laughs> all my, my lovely patients. They're all miracle babies, right? For sure. But I did want to say, so like our cats, one of the things when was like the cats, they, they don't respond as well as dogs to chemotherapy. It's, it's a thing because cats, however, if they do respond, then there's a chance they're usually going to stay in remission longer. Like once they do respond, they yeah. respond for a longer period of time. Um, so that is a uh, positive once we start to see that response. I did want to say that about our kitties. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Like when we talk about GI lymphoma and cats, um, because we, especially in internal medicine, we just see so many GI lymphoma cats, um, cause they come to us. Right. Uh, you know, we joke, we're like, well, we joke slash hope, <laughs> Um, at some point we've got to figure out why so freaking many cats get GI lymphoma because it's so prevalent, so prevalent. Um, and you know, we make this joke that all, all old cats are just going to have GI lymphoma and we're like, but why, like what, what is it that's like missing in their diet or what are they exposed to that is just why? I think yeah. a lot of it's going to come down to the exposure part because of how often they groom and how much of the environment ends yep. up internal in them. Yep. Yeah. And so finding that's the smoke thing. Like I often, like they come in, I am that person. I'll be like, honey, you smoke too much. You got to get it down to one pack a day. I'll joke with <laughs> my cats they don't have the choice, but. Well, uh, I'm going to push back on that because we don't smoke in our house and we've had three out of our five cats have GI lymphoma. So, and I'm like, what is in this environment or what is in the food or not in the food? Cause this is also a thought process. Well, I'm like, I mean, do you need more mice and rats and, and birds in your diet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Danny's absolutely correct. And as far as the, the topical part there, I mean, they, yeah. they certainly. But so awesome. one of the things I was going to say for cats, 
when it comes to staging them. So my own, right? I'm an oncotech. We were doing the ultrasound on my cat and it seemed fine. So she's like, you know, what? let's just do the, the biopsies. So set her up for endoscopy. And I was like, oh my goodness, I did not take chest x-rays on her. Who am I? And what am I doing? I don't even know my own job anymore. My 16 year old cat and I didn't take chest x-rays. So of course she's waiting up from anesthesia. We take them. And the next day, the radiologist is like, we need to retake those. I was like, why, why do we, she was, they're like, well, there's some atelectasis. I was like, yes, but that means she thinks there's something there. Doesn't she? So we ended up retaking them and she did in fact have a primary pulmonary tumor as well that we incidentally found. Uh, based on her responding to the chemotherapy and steroids, we realized that her, her lung tumor was in fact just an incidental finding. And since she was 16 with one kind of cancer, I wasn't going to put her through a thoracotomy to remove it. So we just monitored that. And it actually was totally fine. Just hanging out in her lungs oh while we God. don't get cancer. Crazy. So you should always, always do your staging. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, let's see. Tip of the week. Do your staging. (laughs) Do your, yes. Take your chest x-rays before they're under anesthesia because (laughs) can definitely hide some major problems. And I think I, I, we talked about it last week too. I, I think with the staging, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like, do you, do you want to just take the chest rads, see where we're at and hope that they're clear and you're like, dang it, I spent money. And then it's the the tip of the week. Do the surgery and be like, oh yeah, we got to take those chest rads. And you look at the chest and it looks like popcorn. You know, I mean, I've definitely seen both sides of it. So (laughs) just, just, you know, leave it up to the client. Just let them know you know, we can do the chest rods. We recommend them. So we have a baseline, um, or we could not do them. And then if something comes up, we just don't know if it was there to begin with. And some clients are okay with that. And I'm one of those people in life in general. I always tell people like I learn lessons the hard way, like, and I do it frequently and I like other people to learn from mine so that they don't have right. to do it themselves. So I will gladly tell that story about how, I missed a whopper on my own until it was. And then I got both diagnoses on the like same day. And I was a disaster. Disaster. I don't know where you want to put this one because I am internal medicine. So I'll bring it back to this because cats are cats and prednisone alone is prednisone alone. Monitor very closely to make sure that you don't start noticing extreme PUPD, right? Uh, And losing weight because the diabetes It'll, it'll sneak up on you. Um, and that always, that's the worst when you're like, great. Now we have to take them off of the steroid that's keeping the cancer under control. So yeah, absolutely. I've definitely had to do that or you have had to wean it back because you saw like the pre we were like, Ooh, Oh no. Yeah. My mom's cat. We just had to, we just had to take off of the pred and I was like, all right, Chloribus will do your thing. So, I mean, so far we're good. I'm a tech. I've got a cat with EGC and we cannot get him off of steroids. He's been on 10 milligrams a day Woo. for a while. Mm, he's down to five. He's finally down to five. But thanks to a Lily ingestion, I know that he does not have diabetes. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, we took him in for his recheck because, you know, we do the three to six month rechecks for his, for his cancer. And we were like, your BG is almost 200. Like, and it normally was like 120. And I was like, what? So of course I did the fructosamine and I was like, son of a sea biscuit. So cause, cause I'm internal medicine. I was like, well, he's staying at my house right now. And I was like, I'm going to monitor his BG. So I'm just going to put the freestyle Libre on him. I was like, oh, give me the insulin. Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I was like, all right. So, you know, I know don't give insulin if it's below like 150, I'm like, just don't do it. Taking him off the steroids, like immediately normal blood glucose. And so it's like, yeah. thank God. So now we just have to make sure that the, uh, chemo or the, the chemo, the cancer, the cancer doesn't flare. Right. It's been three months. Because I'm knocking on wood somewhere. Prednisolone is absolutely magic when it comes to yeah. cap. Yeah. Yeah. It's just magic. All right. Any other pearls of wisdom for this week, ladies, while I have you here talking about GI lymphoma? Look for it. This oh, week. look for it. You know what? Uh, I do have one. I do have one before besides right. um, when we talk about trying to get their weight back on. Um, I, I remember I had an oncologist always say like, it's a slow disease. They slowly get sick. They slowly get better. So it's yeah. not immediate. They're not going to have all of their weight put back on. There's various diets. I can tell you that that GI high energy from Royal Canaan is a godsend in the beginning because it's high calorie without it being like AD and you know, the McDonald's yeah. Right. But it's got so many calories. So if they're still just eating that small amount when they're getting used to eating more and getting their stomach back to an appropriate size, it can yeah. be absolutely amazing, but definitely watching their diet. And honestly, if they'll eat it, let them eat it until their appetite gets back up to normal. Yeah. And I, well, and I'll push on, on the internal medicine side, right? Cause like if they, Oh, if they had food allergies or food sensitivities mm. prior to all of this, right. Um, that was a diagnosed food sensitivity versus like, Oh, they're vomiting. We think it's a food sensitivity, but totally, totally different. But like, if, especially if they were on a novel protein before all of this, just, just remind clients that they're, they're still going to have their food sensitivity. Right. And so, cause a lot of clients will be like, well, he has cancer. I'm going to give him whatever. And you're like, Right. But, but, but that actually makes them feel worse because they have an allergy. So, you know, it's that balance of if they don't have an allergy, then yeah, let them eat. We'll deal with figuring it out later. But, um, you know, we don't want them to feel worse if, if they have an allergy or a true sensitivity that makes them have vomiting and diarrhea. Cause then you're like, is it the allergies or is it the cancer? And there's the difference between internal medicine and oncology. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I'm like, you have a food sensitivity. Stop giving them the chicken. Like that's usually what it ends up. Cause I'm like, so do they feel worse after you give them the chicken? Mm. It's okay. Definitely didn't even think of that. So see, that didn't even cross my mind. I mean, pancreatitis and like making all those things angry crosses my mind. I'm like, sensitivity what's just kidding I'm not well actually. but I mean but that's the thing it's like if if they do in 
if it's truly a diagnosed food sensitivity, because people say, oh yeah, they're allergic to things. And I'm like, "Mm, are they really? (laughs) (laughs) And when did the food allergy pop up? In the last six months? Probably the GI lymphoma, not a food allergy, right? Like there's, there's, um, so, you know, and that's the thing, like you may have to do a food trial once they're on chemo and be like, can they, can they get other things? that's not going to upset their stomach or do we need to stick with like the certain diet? I mean, but we can't let them starve. Can't let them starve. So that's true. And we should actually stick with the same diet because we do eventually try to wean them off of the steroid (laughs) and the chemotherapy, which when they're on it could be preventing that reaction from showing up because of the nature of suppressing the immune system right it's funny because (laughs) ibd how do you treat ibd prednisolone and sometimes chlorambucil exactly and how do you treat the lymphoma prednisolone and chlorambucil (laughs) you know and and actually that's part of like that client communication too because we've had clients that you know, they can't afford to do the endoscopy or the surgical biopsies. And, and we tell them, look, <laughs> if it's IBD or if it's GI lymphoma, here's how we treat them. So if you're okay, not knowing mm-hmm. if it's food sensitivity versus cancer, like if you're okay being in that gray zone, then let's just start treatment, right? Like, because then it's palliative and then they feel better and they're like, great. And then sometimes they're like, well, can I find out if it's cancer? And you're like, nope, because <laughs> you've just now suppressed it if it was there. So that's enough. Right. That's, oh, there's my tip. Oh, that want, tip. See, this I got is the why. Tip. <laughs> tip of the week. Do not, do not start any steroids, AKA prednisolone or prednisone in dogs before doing diagnostics or staging, because you will change the results and perhaps not get an answer because it actually biopsies, Mm -hmm. biopsies or cytology definitely don't start the steroids in the other chemo. You have someone who doesn't know if they want to do diagnostics or staging, treat the other symptoms, but not with steroids. If they aren't sure that they want to treat with anything else, but they know they don't want to do any other tests go for it. Yeah. We've had some clients get referred to us and and the primary vet started them and we're like, cool. That is a very big deal in the oncology world. We have a lot of pets because it does make them feel better for by the time that they get in. It's just, unfortunately, now we can't tell prognosis based on where it was because was it there or wasn't it there? We don't know. Um, makes things a lot harder. So calling the oncologist first before starting those is a great thing or just don't or get your biopsy samples and then start like i mean you could do that like you it doesn't have to get diagnosed at a specialty clinic it can get just diagnosed at a gp um you know uh the hairball obstructions get a biopsy of the lymph node that the hairball is stuck at so all right. So that's my, yeah, that's my big tip. Don't start the roids. Don't do it. Right. All right, ladies, anything, <laughs> any other tips we <laughs> want to throw out people this week? I think, I, I think I'm good. Do we want to, do we want some kitten meows to lead us out? Oh my gosh. That can, that can happen so easily. Come here. You guys. 
You're, oh you're lucky it's not scratch and sniff because they're stinkier than how they sound. <laughs> they're Jenny's being amazing and got some foster kittens. So, oh. gosh, all right. It's time to go feed these little beasts. <laughs> oh. For all, all right, of you technicians out there, we hope you enjoyed some kitten realness. And thanks, Jenny and Danny, for feline GI lymphoma. So don't get that kittens. And, wow. uh, <laughs> you guys have a wonderful week and, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Awesome. Bye. Good night, ladies. Gosh. All right. It's time to go feed these little bees. <laughs> For all, right, all of you technicians out there, we hope you enjoyed some kitten realness and thanks jenny and danny for feline gi lymphoma so don't get that kittens and uh (laughs) you guys have a wonderful week and uh we'll talk to you next time bye good night ladies thank you for listening to today's episode of the internal medicine for vet techs podcast If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettex.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.